for joining our weekly podcast. Uh, I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, uh, which delivers content, by the way, in many different ways. Um, uh, the daily reports, these podcasts, and webinars. And I do uh, occasionally occasional speaking engagements as well. And by the way, uh, the content is much more than a newsletter. Uh, it is really a knowledge platform from which we communicate thought leadership on various uh, strategic topics. And uh, for these podcasts, <clears throat> which so far have been mostly a conversation between me and our chief strategist, Shelly Cohan, who is also, by the way, a professor at FIT and Syracuse University. Anyway, we decided that from time to time, depending on our topic, we would invite an expert to join us. Well, honestly, Robin, our guest today is probably one of the biggest retail gurus and most influential leaders who has ever graced our industry. I know because I worked in his organization and can say firsthand, he is an icon of both retail and leadership. Totally agree, Shelley. And, and yes, expert would be a, a huge understatement to introduce Michael Gould, uh, the former CEO of Bloomingdale's. He is everything Shelley said. And Michael, we are truly honored to have you join our conversation. Thank you very much. And because of your breadth of knowledge about everything retail, including its entry now into the tech era and a lot of the effects of the, of the, of the pandemic, uh, we are gonna have a very wide ranging uh, discussion today. And I thought that a good place to start would be uh, where I believe, and I think you do too, every decision in every consumer facing business should start with, and that's with the consumer. What does the consumer want and how can we deliver? So Mike, given your long career, how important is this? What really, what really seems to be simple common sense, right? I know you were an avid student of the late famous Peter Drucker, who by the way, for our younger listeners, some who may <laughs> not even been born, uh, but for the younger people out there, Peter Drucker uh, was a management consultant, educator, author, whose writings contributed to the philosophical and practical foundations of the modern business corporation. He invented the concept known as management by objectives and self-control. And he has been described as the founder of modern management. He was really a giant. So Mike, I know that you had an amazing experience with him uh, discussing this very issue about what the consumer wants. So could you please take us through that story? It was, it was really great. And, and what you learned and used in your own uh, business and the many roles you had. And how has the industry in general adhered to this, I say, real common sense strategy? Well, uh, thank you, Robin. Uh, I will uh, discount 90 some odd percent of what Shelley said, uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, I mean, she's not, she's not applying for a job, but it sounded like she was, and I don't have one. <laughs> so Shelley, if you think I believed uh, 80% of what you said, forget about it, but I appreciate it nevertheless. 
So thank you, Robin. And I, I do enjoy listening to your podcast on a regular basis. And you. I, as you know, I, I have no problem to give you a call afterwards. The problem is usually <laughs> when I call you say, what, what are you complaining about now? I'm really not complaining. I'm really trying to understand things better like everyone else. Uh, yeah. I, I think that uh, when you talked about Peter Drucker in 1991, I was the CEO of of Giorgio Beverly Hills in California, the perfume company. And uh, I was uh, appointed by Alan Questrom to uh, go to Bloomingdale's. Uh, and before I left, I, I was uh, always fascinated reading the articles that Peter Drucker had, usually uh, in the Wall Street Journal. He had a regular column, as well as all the other things he did. And I wrote him a letter. I told him what I was going to do because a recent article he had was that struck my, my eye. They all did was when he said that no one has more information about their customer and does less with it than department stores. And so that just struck me if I had spent, you know, my first 10 years at Abraham and Strauss and eight years at J.W. Robinson. So I wrote him a letter, asked if I could meet him. And he said, please come on out. And I went out to, he called me, my, him, he called me himself. I went out to Claremont where he was at the college, met him at his home and spent three hours at lunch. And it was fascinating. He had gone to the Montclair Mall beforehand to go through Nordstrom's. And we talked about it. And, and so the other thing we talked about, which I always felt was incredible, was when he said that if you asked 100 uh, uh, executives what's the main purpose of their business of, say, to make a profit, his argument was, and, and 90, 99% in his mind would be wrong, because his mind was the most important thing that you had to do in a company was exceed the expectations of the customer. That if you did that, you would make the profit. But if it was only to make a profit, at some point in time, you would do things that would be counterproductive to your long-term growth. And that's really what I learned on that, that visit. And it was really quite remarkable. But when you talk about, and I know you had a conversation about this recently, and Shelley went on about it at, at, at length, at, at very good terms, about what does the customer want I'm always reminded of, of Steve Jobs. When uh, Isaacson wrote the book on Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs says, I don't believe in customer research. The customer doesn't know what they want. Right. Well, how does the customer know what they want in, as far as the product goes? We went to a restaurant last night, the, all, all the kids and the family. And I don't know, I said to uh, Gabriella, the, 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 the maitre d' or the waitress in this particular place, it's the Brightman neighborhood. I said, Gabriella, where are the specials tonight? Then some people took the special, some people took the menu. Uh, someone said, she said, well, how, how do you want the fish cooked? And one of the kids said, the way the chef wants it, the way the chef likes it. So when I think about that, I think, what does the customer want? The customer doesn't know what they want. Does the customer know that they go into a Nike store and say, you know what I really want is a Nike shoe that has a Louis Vuitton label on it. I don't <laughs> think they say that. But what they say is what they want and what satisfies them is the service aspect. The fact that is someone really communicating with them? Is someone relating to them and what their needs are? Is someone being empathetic with them? And so when you, you think about Amazon and some people say, oh, well, their issue is about price. Their issue in my mind is not price. Their issue is very clearly, they have figured out and, his, and, and what he has said in his very first annual report was it's about cash flow and market share. He didn't really care. He didn't worry. His words were one myopic. He didn't worry about one my about the myopic demands of Wall Street. That the customer right. came before the employees. The customers right. come before the employees at, at Amazon. That's now I 
I would debate that a little in, in a Bloomingdale's, but just leave it aside. Everything is about the customer. It's about the service. He's not asking the customer what they want. And then he has all the information about what they have. So, you know, and I think that uh, when uh, Herb Jolly went to Best Buy, when you read his article and his interview, the first thing he did was what I did at Bloomingdale's was go around the stores and talk to the sales associates and the other associates. What's good? What, what can we do that make it better? And I think that's what it's about listening to the associates. I think, yes, listening to customers about what their concerns are. It takes too long to check out. I don't like the return policy. That's important. But as far as the product goes, I, I'm with Steve Jobs there. I, I wouldn't know what to say as I want. So, yeah. Well, and so, yeah, the consumer's really in the center of everything. Uh, I think the point there, and, how do you think the industry is today on, on that issue? I mean, do you think that most of them understand it and really do focus on what you just talked about? No, I, I think that, uh, I think there's a balance. I know that, uh, this, that uh, Jeff Bezos very clearly says the customer comes first, not, not the associate. Right. I, I, think, I think it has to be in tandem. I don't think it has to be one or the other. Now, maybe his argument was, I can't do everything I can for the customer if I'm also going to worry to the same degree about the associates. I, I think it really has to be in tandem. But, you know, I find it interesting when I listen to uh, analyst meetings, uh, some of the, st the stores in particular talking about their quarterly reports or whatever, and then listening to a number of people on your podcast. There are only two really have struck me that talked about people, and they were relatively uh, recent. One was Gary Friedman talking about RH, yeah, and right. he did talk about people to, to a degree. But the one that spoke about it the most was, in my mind, Hal Lawton, when you had uh, him oh, talking yeah. about tractor supply. And meanwhile, he came from a place, Macy's, and I'm not going down that, 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 uh, that road. He comes well, from a place not? with Well, <laughs> he came from a place with Macy's where I, I think, the, the, and I, listen, I've said it in a, in a very nice way to, to Jeff many years ago. I've said it to my, my very dear friend, Alan Questum, on a regular basis, because we talk all the time, that, you know, listen, culture, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Until you change ah. the culture, until you change the culture, until you say, I really, really, truly believe and I really emphasize my people, it's never going to happen. So when Hal Lott was talking about tractor supply, I'd never been in one. So I went from uh, Millbrook over to Amenia up in, uh, in Dutchess County in New York, and I went on tractor supply. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I wasn't looking for the feed or the grain and the tractor and all of that. But... They, I just saw a, a comment today and they got an award in the IT area for one of the best places to work. But they, both those people, in my mind, when they were talking on your program, you could hear the passion that it wasn't just slinging the baloney. They really believed it right. was about the people. And when you have a little a store in a little town and it's, you're, not, you're competing against a Walmart or a Home Depot, you better have it on the people's skills because you can't win on just on price. Yeah, you got that right. You know, Ace Hardware does that uh, in communities that, you know, where Home, De Home Depot put a lot of hardware stores out of business, but Ace was able to, to be in the neighborhood. They're part of the community. So yeah, kind of like Tractor Supply. Yeah, he was terrific. And Tractor but Supply- But I'll give you an example of that, of what, and I think it's an example of what any kind of store can do. So there's a, 
a big lumber yard up in uh, in Dutchess County in P- Poughkeepsie, where I go all the time to get the paint and other stuff. And it's it's also Ace. So you know, they buy through Ace or whatever it is. I think it's a family business, but Ace. There's never been a time, and I, I would say in the last 14 months we've been up there, I, I'm sure I've been in that store 50, 40, 50 times. There's never a time I've checked out where they haven't said, do you have Ace Rewards? And there's never a time I haven't said, uh, that's okay, no thank you. Wow. And then there's never been a time, never been a time when one of those <clears throat> checkout ladies say to me, oh, sir, oh, it has my credit, see my credit, uh, Mr. Gould or sir, you don't have to fill a form out. You just want to give me your, uh, your, uh, whatever it is, your social, your pin number or whatever it is. I'll just put it right in the system. And you'll have all these benefits all these times. So they ask, but they never have the follow-up. So it's like, it's, it's like a, it's like a customer. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, a company, a thing. Make sure you ask if they have the reward, but how about asking me, well, gee, you don't have one. I'm telling you something. Just give me your cell number. I'll put it in the computer. You don't do anything more. Just, hey, 917, whatever it is. So what are we doing? What information could they have about me that they're not doing? What's all the things that they're missing the boat on? And I think it's enormous. And I think that that's that's the challenge going forward. That's the challenge of, of, of anyone that's competing against Amazon, because I don't think you have to lose the battle of Amazon. And I just... There's a small bookstore up in Millbrook where we're living most of the time now. And I try to give uh, Kira all the business I can. I mean, I buy at least a book a week. Forget about what Sarah buys. At least a book a week. And I try to give her all the business. But now she knows what I like. Now I'll get a phone call. Now I'll get an email. When I walk in, I get a suggestion. So there's trying to be a relationship. So I think what Peter Drucker talked about, what I gave away the most was, that you're never going to win on a transaction. You're only going to win if you can build a relationship. And so yeah. a transaction is, it could be $1,000, it could be $100,000 sale at Tiffany. But unless that person builds a relationship, unless the person wants to come back, you have no idea of how much, what is the opportunity of that, of that customer. Yeah. You know, I had a, um, an experience at the VF Corporation many years ago during the 80s, I was uh, charged their strategic planning. And uh, I'll never forget uh, Rob Gregory, who was the COO at the time and oversaw a strategy. It, it was kind of like my Drucker moment. He said, you know, he said, Rob, you look at almost all annual reports and right up front, they got the financials. He said the financials ought to be at the end of the, uh, the report uh, the whole front end of it should be what they're what we're going to be doing to please the consumer, and and uh, that always struck with me the same way that Drucker stuck with you. Um, anyway, you also mentioned culture, and I believe that wasn't that one of Drucker's comments many years ago about culture will eat strategy. Well, I, I don't you know we had that conversation. I don't really remember whether it was Drucker, but. It very well could be, and, and, yeah. and in all probability it was, but I have no problem stealing the, the, the comment that's 30 years ago. <laughs> and and, uh, and the comment is just true, but I, yeah. I really believe that before I came to Bloomingdale's, I think I practiced that at Robinson's particularly and, and, at, and at Giorgio. But, you know, I really think that, you know, we were really taught that at Abraham and Strauss. I mean, you have to remember at A&S at the time I was there, 
you know, Mickey Drexler was also merchandise vice, five of us at one time. Mickey was one. Mike Jeffries was another, Ken Court and, and, and uh, Eddie Kagan and I. So we came with a culture. We understood what people was about. We understood that, you know, you didn't need to listen. to. It's always important to listen to David Ogilvy, the great advertising man who said yeah. his inventory went up in the morning and down at night because that was his people. I mean, that's the real inventory of Bloomingdale's is the people. It's not that Estee Lauder or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Dolce yeah. Gabbana. Lots of stores have it. So yeah. I think that I, I really do believe it, but I don't think it's something you can just talk about. I think it's something that has to be the walk, has to be walked and talked on a daily basis. It's not so, a once a year annual performance. Right. So, yeah, yeah. And to that point, I know Shelly's got a bunch of questions, but I want to get this one in here. Uh, can you give us some examples of how you instilled a kind of a customer first culture in Bloomingdale's? Both, both you know, what they want and the kind of service in the stores. Well, I think when I came, I, it, I thought it was a very uh, merchandise-driven <coughs> company. I think what you know, Marvin Traub did uh, was really unique. I never could have done it, uh, not, not build the kind of uh, events and fortnights that he did and, uh, and the creativity he did in, in, uh, in merchandising and, and marketing. But what I did feel there was an opportunity when I came, when I listened to sales associates, when I listened to customers, when I had my own experience, um, was I thought there was an enormous opportunity to be much more customer centric. You know, tell me about the fitting rooms. Tell me about the checkout. Uh, tell me about the cleanliness of the store. Tell me about the flow of merchandise. Um, and so I, I think that to me was, Talk to me about the customer and how, what was the customer going to feel when they came in the store? I always felt the Bloomingdale's when I walked into 59th or any store, but 59th where my office was, that it said Bloomingdale's on top, but in my own mind, it really said Gould. I feel like I was walking in my own home. I wanted people to feel no different that they would feel the warmth. They would feel they'd walk in my home or your home or Shelly's home. And I, and I don't think that's impossible. How do, how do you make people feel that? How do you make people feel... They're special. You know, you know it, it all goes back to one of the famous quotes that's one of my favorite quotes of life. And it's Maya Angelou who said, people will forget what you said and people forget what you did. But people for ne will never forget how you made them feel. How do you yes. make people feel? How do you make yeah. people feel in the restaurant? You know, my wife, Sarah and I were in a restaurant the other day. And I said when we left, I said, you know, the food is much better at the other place where there was much later reservation. We couldn't get in. The food is better. The sitting was better, a little bit better. But you know what? I wouldn't trade our waiter, our waitress, and, and the, the busboy or the other helper in, in our other favorite restaurant because it's what makes it special. And, and the food is the food. So the, the degree of difference is a, is a little, but it makes me feel special. When I walk in, it's like Jackie Mason says, they make you feel like an owner. Well, why not? And, and I'll go back to one other comment. I, I told this to uh, uh, Eric Nordstrom's uh, not so long ago. I said, his father once said to my fashion director at uh, J.W. Robinson, you know, Bloomingdale's uh, at that time, J.W. Robinson, he says, tell Mike, because we knew each other, Bruce. I said, tell Mike that uh, I said hello and tell him he has better buyers than I do. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So she said, she said, okay. He says, but also tell him I have better sellers. 
And ah. so I said to myself, isn't that an interesting woman? So I asked the fella who was the head of USU at the time. I said, what is that secret? I never forget it. I'd never forget what Phil said to me. He said, Mike, when the lady sits in that chair, they make her feel like a queen. And I said to myself, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's the way I feel in the restaurant. We went last night, which is two blocks away. And I said, how do we make people feel special? So I think that is how you make a customer feel special. Customer doesn't come in the store knowing, oh, it's this shade lipstick I want. If they're using one that they've been using, they don't know what's new. They don't know, did anyone know when, when Jeff Bezos came out with Alexis, what Alexis was? His own people thought he was crazy. Yeah. When Apple came out with Siri, did someone ask, oh, I need Siri. And Steve Jobs says to his team, oh, let's make a Siri. So I don't think people really know product-wise, in particular, unless it's something they've been using that they need. But other than that, what they want is they want a service. They want to feel, be, feel special. They want to do what, what, uh, what Hal Lawton was talking about. They yeah. want someone to really know them, really know, hey, wait a second. This is the kind of feet I have. Here are the kind of cows I have. And by the way, I, I have a daughter who works in one of the high-end jewelry specialty stores, and she really does know that about her customer. That's the difference in my mind. Yeah. How, how do you make them feel? That's a great word. How do you feel? Yeah. So I know, Shelly, you got a bunch of questions. Yeah, Mike, I'd love to ask you, you know, uh, definitely understand the customer experience and making them feel special. Um, how can the traditional legacy department stores also build a compelling experience in the stores to pull these younger customers away from the Internet? Well, I don't think, well, I listen to you all the time and you're, you don't think anyone's getting pulled away from the internet. What you think is you can get a piece of their, 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 their share wherever they're going to shop. Um, I mean, right. Warren had a terrific article out today, Warren Schulberg, on, on the supermarkets. Oh, yeah. I, remember, I remember, Robin, you having at the Harvard, was it the Harvard Club about five or six years ago, and you had Alan Questrom, and you were interviewing oh, yeah. him. Yes. And, I, I, and I, he said that he, he never believed that supermarkets that could ever be in the online business. And when it was over, he and I walked back from the Harvard Club. Uh, he was staying, he was leaving the Regency, he had his, his bag there, and I was going a couple blocks up from the Regency uh, to uh, whatever. And we walked the whole way. And I said, Alan, you are smoking. I mean, you know, I worked for him for a long time. So I, I've known Alan since 1967. So after uh, 54 years, I, I, I don't have a problem telling what he's full of. But the fact of the matter, I said, Alan, you're crazy. Why do you think that they're not going to be online? How, how are they going to leave fresh perishables? I said, we put a man on the moon. You don't think we can figure out how to deliver <laughs> merchandise that can stay fresh? Harry and David can do it. What are you talking about? You can't do it. It's yeah. going to happen. Now, I it started they, to happen. And obviously, the pandemic took it to a whole nother level. Well, so, get, 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 let me throw in a, a statistic here. And Shelly, back me up on this. Uh, the the pre-pandemic grocery, online grocery sales were like 3%, okay? Right. And after or, or during the pandemic, it blew up to, I think, beyond 30%. Did it not, Shelly? That's right. And what is it in coming out of the pandemic? I don't know if any numbers are out there yet, but a lot of experts say that it's going to stick at, at a double digit high. 
Uh, I think I think Warren Warren had a little different number. He said it was two to three before the pandemic, and it, yeah. and he thinks it will stick in the twelve to fifteen range, which oh, is okay. still less than the than you have a lot of other products will be in that twenty five uh, percent yeah. range. But whether it is or it isn't, all you have to do is take a look at what Walmart has been doing in food before the pandemic. What Kroger's doing? I thought he had a terrific article talking about what people are doing. So. That does talk a little about what do the customer want, but did the customer know they wanted uh, uh, curbside pickup? No, I don't think so. No. Did they know they wanted pre-food package? I don't think so. But once they were given something that made their lives easier, holy Moses, they become you know passionate believers and 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 proponents of it. Yep. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that... But, but like Robin, you asked the question, I'm sorry, uh, interrupt, uh, or Shelly asked the question, what did stores do? You know, I yeah. find it interesting and, and, you know, it's easy being a Monday morning quarterback. When you don't have a job of running the store, you can just sit back or of anything and pontificate. So <laughs> I, I have to admit, can be a great pontificator. And, but, you know, when you see that Macy's can spend whatever, six million dollars on the fireworks july 4th i'd ask the question if i spent six million dollars to shelly's question if i said six million dollars in 20 stores okay you know whatever it is you know take a number and said i'm just going to have activities events and all those things i can do inside the store would that right. give me a better payback than another Thanksgiving Day parade in July 4th, or can I do both? But I do think that, you know, there are activities in the store. So to answer that, uh, Shelly, I, I, I have a 23-year-old, so he just graduated college. So he, you would think that to him, Target is the be-it-all end-all. But he's a Target person. He'll go to Costco. He likes Home Depot. Okay? So... You know what? I said to him yesterday, so tell me, I, I'm, I'm going on a podcast. Give me some advice. Where would you shop? <laughs> I don't know. What do you, what, what do you, where you go to, uh, what, what is Target? Target a discounter? No, it's a store. I said, well, what's Walmart? He said, well, that's a store too. Is it a discounter? No, I think it's a store. It doesn't have as much fashion as Target, but it has better produce. This is a 23 year old. Yeah. I said, so would you go in a mall? asking your question. He said, I go to a mall, I, why? Well, there's a food activity going on. If there's something else that's interactive, I would do it. So I don't think that you raised that question the other day about the gens and this, this group and that group uh, not shopping in malls. I think they'll go if it's interesting. And I think that it isn't just about luxury, but it has to be, I think food and beverage is enormous. I think wellness is enormous. I think that younger people will go in malls, but there's no question that the world has changed online. And I, I leave it with one last thing on that subject. Uh, uh, and you know, I've said this to you before, Robin, and I told a couple of CEOs uh, uh, about four years ago, I said, you guys better be careful about one thing. And if when the luxury guys figure out that they can go online with their products, and not hurt their brands, but enhance their brands, it's all over for you guys. And you can see when Vuitton and Gucci, yeah. that 25% of their business now is online. 
My prediction is, I don't like doing predictions, but my prediction is in five years, those luxury, none of those luxury brands will be in the, in the four major department stores. They don't oh need them. They wow. don't need them. Wow. That's amazing. That's the direct, to, the direct to consumer model. Again, we've been talking a lot about that. Um, well, and it certainly yeah. works. And yeah. the other thing to Shelly is, listen, if, if, if those guys can pay 5% rent, why are they going to pay Nordstrom's and Neiman's and Saks 11%? And right. every solitary time, in my mind, and listening to those guys talk to me, every time they've closed one of those doors in the Neiman's or Saks or Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's, and they open up their own store, they're doing 30 to 40% more business in their own store. Yeah. So what, why am I going to be in that business? They, I don't need them. Not, wow. not, the, not the high-end luxury guys. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, what about the small chains like the Mitchells up in Connecticut? And they're, they're, they're totally designer brands, right? So it's obviously gonna affect them as well, I would assume. Well, but I, I don't think they have, well, there's designer and designer. So do I think that if, they have the Dolce and Gabbana's and the Dior's. I don't. I think the few things like a Mitchell's uh, will will be able to still survive because I think there's just a different. Well, Jack had built that business in my mind. Yes, it's assortment, but it's on one thing. It's on the quality of his service and the fact that how incredibly located he was in Connecticut, in that Greenwich area, and all that the Fortune 500. But even Fortune 500 CEOs, like one of my former bosses, Jim Preston, who worked in New York, but was a passionate customer of, of Mitchell's. And because, you know, yeah. he, he lived in Kent part of the time and lived in New York part of the time. So I think it comes back again to what's the service? How yeah. do I make you feel? Are you part of my family? Are you part of my family? And I just don't know how you make that any more important. Yeah. So what is we you and I have discussed this before, Mike. Uh, what do you think of these small store strategies like say Bloomies? What do you think of that? Well I I listen, the best baseball player, uh, <laughs> you know, the guy who's gonna win the, the, the batting champion this year, championship, probably get a hit thirty-three percent of the time. Now, a department store is not going to win at 33% of the time. But you have to swing at the ball to make a hit. So the fact that, you know, Macy's tried story at one time, I have no, I had no problem with it. I thought the execution of it within Macy's made no sense whatsoever. Do I think that this Bloomingdale's thing is, is a possibility? Listen, I hope it's successful. But let's say it's successful. What is success? How are you going to judge success? $400 a foot, $8.8 million and 22,000 feet, call it 9 million. How many are you going to have to have any impact? So yeah. I don't believe that small Macy's, and by the way, I think this store, I don't know, I have no inside information. I believe that this store was, a, a, was planned to be one of those Macy's stores, the one that they had outside of Dallas, and they, 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 they disbanded that, and they, I guess they had the lease with Eden, and therefore, they made a, a try to Bloomingdale's thing. I think a Bloomingdale's uh, 22,000 foot store, I hope it's successful. I think that's very different than uh, 
trying to years ago, um, we I made a proposal to roll out a Soho mint, uh, concept around the country and the senior management didn't want to do it. I thought that in, in 60,000 square feet really could have been something very yeah. unique in contemporary cosmetics and, and, and accessories. It well, didn't. Yeah. I, don't, I am not a believer in the small store because I don't think it solves the problem. I'm not talking about Bloomingdale's, but it does solve the problem about how do I fix the core business? And the core business is a business that has to be fixed by culture change, and it has to be fixed by a whole other things. So it, it, you can have all these little small stores, and how many are you going to have to get to 100? You can have 10 of them. And, and that's the $100 million in the, in the business that's whatever, $20 billion or $18 billion. It's, it's, it's a non yeah. – there's no, there's no way to, 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 uh, to get it to scale. Uh, but I, there is no one, <laughs> there's no one in this world uh, that, including Tony Spring, that wants Bloomingdale's to be uh, successful. But uh, yeah, I, yeah. let's say I, I want to be him to be as successful as he wants to be because you know I love him and I, I, that store is you know my was my life for 23 years. So uh, what can I tell you? But I, I just don't believe that it has either for Bloomingdale's or Macy's or or a Belts or a Dillard's doing something like that. There's no scale. There's no scale. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't care so much about scale as I do uh, su supporting uh, geographies and uh, taking share uh, locally and uh, getting closer to the consumer and being more engaged on a local level and with more service and so on. Anyway, my opinion, I think Tony is going to pull it off. I think he's a very smart guy. Um, Anyway, but that yeah, we th that conversation could go on for a long time. So, well, Shelly, uh, yeah, I know you got to uh, go ahead. I really want to ask Mike this question because I think it's really relevant to today, and I think he's the perfect person to talk about this. But Mike, your leadership in the industry has always been reflective of civility and respect. I remember you had all of us read Mandela's Way by Rick Sengel. Um, so you certainly understand these, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives that have been really coming out strongly recently. It's always kind of been part of your own DNA. You know, how can retailers and brands really tackle this problem in our industry with workers, outsourced factories, customers? You know, I, I, I think those are two separate issues. Um, the first one's an easy one. Um, I read a book called Mandela's Way. I thought it was sheer genius. And uh, I bought nine copies for the rest of the executive committee, asked them to read it. But I asked people to read lots of things. There was a team of rivals, this, that, and the other thing. It was something I, I just said, you know, read it. I'm not going to quiz you on it. But this one resonated with me to such a degree that it ended up, we must have bought 4,000 copies. So everyone, every executive had one. I had sales associates, I had waitresses in the train blue asking me, why don't I have a copy? Um, because I thought <laughs> it was a book about life. And then what Rex Stengel, who was the editor-in-chief of Time, Inc., uh, did, and Mandela was the godfather of his two sons, um, what he did was he took the business, he took the, the, the lessons of Mandela and said how they relate to business. So it could be leading from the front, you know, uh, courage is not the absence of fear, look the part lead from the front, lead from the back, et cetera. I think there were 14 or 15 of them. And there was no right or wrong to them. And so people use them as a workout because I really believe, and I, I think I saw the article in 1990, 
by John Gardner, who had been uh, uh, head of the Carnegie Foundation and head of Common Cause, or the founder of Common Cause, and uh, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under President Kennedy. And he wrote an article on personal renewal. And I'll never forget one of the phrases in there. And the, person, and the comment was, life is an endless pursuit of self-discovery. And I told, hmm. I would tell every solitary uh, group that came to Bloomingdale's and uh, all the, the new trainees three times a year, uh, we would meet on the, the end of their first day. And I would say, and I use that phrase. I said, listen, I'll make a deal with you right today. We're going to have a covenant. And the covenant is, I, on behalf of Bloomingdale's, will never stop giving you the opportunity to grow. Because you didn't, your education didn't stop when you got your degree from Georgetown or Wash U or Brown. Just one phase stop. Another one starts today. But what I need from you is a commitment that you'll never want to stop learning. And I think that's what the Mandela way was. And that's what I felt my role was. Now, being the son of a professor at MIT and my grandfather, professor, et cetera, probably, you know, tailored my idea of, you know, what ongoing learning was all about, what my role was. So I'm a great stealer of ideas of other people. I don't have very many creative ideas. So Jack Welsh once oh said, they asked him, they asked <laughs> Jack Welsh, what, what's he in charge of? He said, I'm in charge of two things. I'm in charge of capital expenditure and human capital. And trust mm. me, at Bloomingdale's, that's all I was in charge of. Frank Dorop did not need me telling him what dress <laughs> to buy. And David Very Fisher good. would have couldn't care less what I thought about Tommy Hilfiger or Ralph Lauren. I, I had an opinion. But what I controlled was development of people, human aspect, HR, which always reported to me, and the capital expenditure. And I think that's the role. The, the other subject you talk about, Shelley, which is really, it's so way past my pay grade, I, I can't add on it. But I think that's the different role that CEOs are going to be playing right now. And I think the pandemic will may only make that more complicated. And I, I have other beliefs about, you know, work from home and, and the challenges that's going to be for different elements of the population, particularly female I think it's going to be a real challenge, and I think it's going to be a challenge for people getting promoted. And um, it's 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 not all oh this is good I saved commuting time. I think there are a lot of negatives to it. But those are two very separate things. Yeah, well, you know, we're going to have to end on the very positive note, Mike, on your leadership, and that Mandela story is uh, really, uh, I think, just wonderful. And by the way, uh, in my opinion, you are everything Shelley said you were, <laughs> even the 80% that you said you weren't, um, you are one of the great leaders. And uh, by the way, a, a good friend of mine and a person who I think is one of the most intelligent people in the industry and one who I enjoy talking with and I learn every time I have a conversation with you. So when you can call me up anytime, Mike, and complain or crit criticize because I always learn from you. And I think everybody else that, that, that has worked for you would say the same thing, just as Shelly has. So I want to thank you again. We, we we're honored with your presence. And I think our audience heard many, many very positive things about business and how they should uh, uh, deal with it. Hey, thank you, Robin. Thank you, Shelly. Just... Uh... Be well and stay safe and uh, all the very best. And thank you very much for your kind words, but, and for the opportunity to be able to just talk to you freely. 
No one has to agree with me. It's just one person's opinion, but I'm very passionate about it. You sure are. Well, Robin, certainly that was an amazing podcast. Um, for our listeners, you can find more of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and therobinreport.com. And please follow us on social media, link in with us, and follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry. And I want to thank all of you again for being with us. And uh, like every podcast, the end of every podcast, I um, urge any of you in the audience who, uh, who has a topic in mind that you would like Shelley and I to cover in one of the podcasts, please email me, robin at therobinreport.com. 